0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to our first episode in the 2021 Big Read podcast series. My name is Erica Gottfriedsen, and I'm the assistant director of the Big Read. Today, I'm joined by two guests, Juanita Kreider and Malik Raymond, and we're going to be discussing topics of marginalization and representation within the Binti trilogy, written by Nnedi Okorafor. So what I'm going to do before we jump into our conversation is I'm going to ask my two guests to share a little bit about themselves, uh, and then we will get into our discussion. So Juanita,
1: would you like to start with your introduction? Yes, I would. As uh, Erica said, my name is Juanita Kreider and I like to say I wear two hats at the university. My primary hat is that I am program advisor at the Black Cultural Center. I've been doing that for 16 years. And I'm also a PhD candidate in American studies. Um, and I'm right now I'm also teaching uh, intro to wigs class. So I'm very busy.
0: That sounds great. Thank you for joining us. How about you, Malik, you wanna introduce yourself?
2: Um, yes. Um, as Erica had mentioned, my name is Malik Raymond. I am a PhD candidate in American Studies along with Juanita, and um, my research delves into how Black people's experiences with the environment, outdoors, nature has been preserved primarily through Black women in from the early 20th century to the present day. I focus Mainly on the U.S., but to a lesser extent, I focus on the African diaspora. So, um, reading Elmas, I'm I'm not going to use Binti for my project, but I've been wanting to read more African futurism lately, and reading her stuff is like helps spark ideas of so what I might write about, if not for my dissertation in future future writings. That's
1: awesome! It's a great book, Erica. Um, I probably should, oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry, I probably should have shared what my research is. Go for too. it. My research is primarily about how Black women theorize the different phases of menopause and how that phases of menopause is represented in literature, film, and new media like Twitter, Instagram, um, and on podcasts.
0: Podcasts. That's great. That's great that we're doing one of these then. Awesome. Um, Well, I'm excited to talk about the book with both of you. Uh, To our listeners, let me give you a little bit of information and then we'll jump right in. So first is a spoiler alert that we will be talking about um, any parts of the trilogy that seem pertinent to the, the discussion. So if you haven't read in full, just know that we might ruin parts of the book as you continue listening. And then the three of us discussed before recording Uh, That we wanted to offer a collective apology in advance for any mispronunciation of names or terms from the book uh, that we might do throughout this podcast. We are very much looking forward to having Nadia Okorafor on campus in November uh, to clarify some of the terms that we aren't too sure about. Great. So let's move into... um, some introductory material that I think will be kind of useful for laying the groundwork for our conversation. Uh, our opening big read event was a lecture by Dr. Marlo David, who talked on five things to know about African futurism. And I think that the term African futurism is a really good place to start this conversation on issues of marginalization and representation within the Binti trilogy. African futurism is a term that Nnedi Okorafor coined herself to describe her writing. Uh, So I want to offer a quote, and then we'll transition into some questions. So Nnedi Okorafor defines African futurism as, quote, a subcategory of science fiction. It is rooted in African culture, history, mythology, and point of view as it then branches into the Black diaspora, and it does not privilege or center the West. African futurism is concerned with visions of the future, is interested in technology, leaves the earth, skews optimistic, is centered on and predominantly written by people of African descent, Black people, and it is rooted first and foremost in Africa. It's less concerned with what could have been and more concerned with what is and can or will be, and it acknowledges, grapples, and carries what has been. So I wanted to start with this term because I think kind of implicit within this term is Nnedi Okorafor's realization that there wasn't a term to describe her writing Um, And so we see issues of marginalization there, the idea that African cultures and nations have been marginalized or even erased from uh, dominant or mainstream science fiction narratives. And then on the flip side of that, within this definition is the idea of representation and specifically why representation of uh, these experiences that she's trying to shine a light on within her uh, literature, why that's so important important to her and so central within kind of her literary project. So I think issues of representation are super interesting uh, within the book, not only what the book is doing by just being a book that we can read, but also representation within the book. But let's start first by thinking about marginalization and then we'll get into why the voices within the book matter. Uh, So, A key issue that presents itself within the Binti Trilogy is these moments of misrepresentation or marginalization or stereotyping that can directly lead to marginalization amongst different individuals or groups. So just let's start the conversation broadly. Where do we see this happening in the book? Um, Maybe more specifically, where does anti experience, marginalization, or stereotyping, or
1: misrepresentation, and why do these instances happen? Um, before we go there, I just wanted to make a comment about African futurism and your comments. I wanted to say that, and I also feel like um, the, when Okorafor um, is taking out this claim, because there's no word to describe, I also feel like she's excavating, yeah. uh, um, Whereas maybe people have borrowed from African symbolism, African religion, African culture, and other, and other forms of literature, but not calling it and not giving it the credit mm-hmm. that it's due. So mm-hmm. I think she's doing two things. She's creating a, a label, a term for something that she, for something that she writes that she doesn't feel fit. But I also have been thinking about her excavating and reclaiming something also.
0: Yeah, it's like the term, now that we have the term, can also maybe be applied retrospectively to things that have already existed. Um, And she's creating a space, a phrase, a term that kind of gives us the space to have that conversation in ways that haven't been productive in the past. Yeah, thank you absolutely for bringing that up. So what do we think about... Stereotyping, misrepresentation, where do we see that in the book specifically uh, in Binti's experiences?
2: Um, the first thing that pops up for me is the constant use of denoting not just Binti, but Himba people as beggars mm-hmm. and using that kind of as a slur. Um, especially with the rival, I guess, ethnic group, uh, the Kuosh, is that the proper pronunciation? sounds good to Um,
1: me yep we'll go with that
2: (laughs) um and i think it's um it's representative of trying to in her representation of trying to to denote african futurism she's trying to show that she's trying to show that like relations between people in the african continent is not a monolith and there's like Mm -hmm. there could be like internal conflicts between particular groups based on particular biases that one may have on the other. And then there's like this, also this weird dynamic of of the Medusa coming in and both the Himba and the Koj having animosity towards them as well. Um, I think there are like a few instances where I've noticed, I'm trying to look through the book right now to where there's also slight sexist um, ideas in which, uh, she's all. where uh, Himba also faces some marginal identity, like because they said something about you Himba people behave in a certain way, especially you females. I' trying to remember the exact page where that is mentioned, but that stood out to me as well. And there were several instances that stood out to me, especially once she got the akowu in her hair. There, there was this invasiveness of her uh, of people surrounding her, her peer group, and so forth, like touching her akowu. And it was like I've like marked like several instances where this kept happening for her. And I had just watched um, an interview from Nadia Okorafor where she talked about, I think, with the Laguardia La uh, graphic novel that she has. She speaks of she wrote about an actual incident where one of the first time that she was that she was searched through her hair, like the, when she went to TSA, they searched through her hair trying to find like weapons and stuff like that, but they ended up missing uh they end up missing the mace that was in her pocket it Looked like like a like like lipstick and she talked about how she wanted to invoke that into the story of LaGuardia and I wondered if she was trying to do that here as well or just talk about the different experiences that is tied directly to her identity that she might have to deal with because there's this like hypervisibility that she has to deal with um being in this being on this planet um to uh to try to Obtain new knowledge while still retaining her identity as Himba.
1: Absolutely. I guess. Yes. And the whole identity, identity is a very, I would call it a controlling theme or controlling metaphor throughout the book, yeah. because she she wrestles with her identity as a Himba woman, a Himba young girl going through a pilgrimage to womanhood. But yet, because of the, her experiences. On the ship, the the third fish, and because of experiences at school and everything, she she comes part Medusa, and she comes part another identity. So it's the, it's like she going. It's almost um, it could be referred to in some ways as a coming of age story. I think
0: yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Uh, the, in the tradition of the uh, buildings Roman mm-hmm. that she's wrestling with who carving out who Benty wants to be, who she's going to decide who she wants to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why one of the reasons why I'm teaching this book uh, in my Wix course this semester. Absolutely.
0: Well, and a point that comes to my mind that I think might tie both of these ideas together, both kind of the explicit moments of uh, racism that she experiences uh, as she leaves her home culture and her home community. And then also this idea of, belonging and trying to figure out kind of um who she is within the different spaces. The first thing that comes to my mind and this ties in Malik to your point is the book opens with this moment that she's waiting in line to get on um third ship and she has women who pick up her hair uh first off without asking uh but then they are expecting it to pardon my language to smell like shit. Uh, and to me, that is such a, for lack of a better word, compelling moment for what's happening on an individual and a communal level, because on an individual level, Benti is experiencing this moment where she is stereotyped, um, and, her body is literally under scrutiny and also touched by people who she did not give permission to do that. But then on a communal level, there's narratives about her people that are existing in other people's minds that are affecting how they are interacting with her. And so I think the thing that's so beautiful to me about this book is how representation is happening on so many different levels representation and marginalization we see bendy experiencing this as an individual but she also has to be aware in every space that she goes into what are the narratives about my people that are influencing how others are thinking of me what are the narratives that i have of other people Uh, that are influencing how I think about them. Uh, And so it's even that interesting interplay between the individual and kind of the broader societal narratives uh, that are doing the work of um, continuing, I think the marginalization that starts kind of on that individual
1: level. I think that's a very important point you bring up because quite often we don't realize how we've internalized these narratives of these stereotypes, whatever word you want to use, until we are confronted, Absolutely. Uh, find ourselves in a situation that is different than what our everyday most common existence is. And it makes me think she might not really have had a chance to, to question this, uh, these internalized narratives of other people that sh- she have had if she hadn't even left to go to university. Right.
2: Oh, that's and I'm glad you brought that up, Juanita, because something that stood out to me with her character development as well is that she ends up okay once she after the traumatic incident to where the Medusa uh, slaughter a number of people on the ship on the way to the university. She has she has to confront her animus and prejudice against the Medusa with o, with Okwu's character. And there was like a moment in the book where she talks about she carries the edan, edan, or the Edan um, that basically she credits for like preserving her life um, in contrast to the others that were uh, there. And that was like part of what I had mentioned earlier with some of the family members of the person who she was interested in at the beginning of the book. Hebrew calling her a beggar and stuff like how did this beggar survive and so forth. But over the development of the book, she develops this trust with Akwu and she ends up like not using the Edan anymore because she trusts him and um when she goes back to goes back to her home uh she's confronted by her people and in, in the fellow himba people who see her as a uh as a traitor and also she has to confront her own prejudices of the in the nyi um
0: Zenaria?
2: Zenaria. (laughs) The Inyi Zenaria. And because they're known as like, the derogatory term for them is desert people. But once she finds out that she has ancestry from them, she incorporates them into a larger part of her name. And she's like, yeah, I'm also, I am Himba, but I'm also Inyi Zenaria. And I think that was something that stood out to me a lot, too. It's just like you could see the character development in this coming-of-age story to where her interactions with other people is forcing her to not just learn about new people, but unlearn previous stereotypes and prejudices she's had about other people because she is incorporating, whether it's the Medusa or the Enri Xenaria people, incorporating them into her identity as well. And she is all of I, these things.
1: I find it interesting too, uh, Malik, that you refer to Akwu as he. Because does oh, he really? It. He really? Uh, he? Is he? I mean, no, I, I, I mean, it's, it's so easy for us to do. I'm not mm-hmm. saying this to you as a critique. I'm saying this to say that the person, the, the entity the that she becomes close to, the entity that helps her through her identity journey, is not a human. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah.
2: It's
1: it's very significant. It made me think about: is there a bigger? Is there a message about us interacting with? It made me think about um, what you might call echo feminism literature about interacting with our environment can be healing, can help us also in our journey of identity. Mm, That's interesting.
2: That's true.
0: Yeah.
2: That's a really good point, Juanita.
0: Malik, when you were talking, I was thinking about um, how narratives of different groups, I I think to me, the, the trilogy is not only interested in the narratives that can kind of lead to stereotyping or marginalization, but also how those narratives can become cultural narratives that are present in oral histories or the history that's being taught in school or the museums that people go to see. And I think that that's one of the the things that Okorafor, I read it as an explicit way of going, okay, not only do we see the, that these stereotypes exist, but also they... Become widespread in the process of kind of making cultural histories for a certain group of people. And so Binti grew up learning that the Meduse were a very, very violent group. And she has to, through her interactions with them, uh, learn otherwise, even becoming a part of them. Um, but also thinking about like the museums scene and these different places of narratives and histories that we use today and how they can also often be problematic rooted in colonial histories uh problematic histories problematic narratives uh and again i think that goes back to this idea of kind of all the different levels of representation and marginalization that are happening here starting with binti as one small young girl all the way up to kind of these Cultural forces that are literally influencing how people and in groups interact with each other. I think it's absolutely fascinating,
1: and it's interesting too. Her how her her journey of finding out and deciding who she is and who she wants to be. How it causes uh, stress in her relationship with her childhood friend. Yes.
2: Yeah. Delay.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: And I think it ties back to her identity as a harmonizer as well, because I remember in some of those instances with her interactions with Dele, she was saying that she, he doesn't get it because he's not a harmonizer like she is. Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder if this would be a good place to transition to my next question, because I think marginalization, narratives, stereotypes, Kind of some big picture issues that are happening here but then like if we look at the book and I know we're doing an audio podcast so our viewers can't see us but I'm holding up the uh, front of the book right now and I am obsessed with the cover of the book and also a lot of Nnedi Okorafor's books include a close-up face of a young Black girl on the front. And so it's not just Benti, but it's also a trend amongst a variety of her different novels. And I think that gets to one of the things that kind of keeps coming up in our conversation is that Benti and her identity sits at the intersection of all of these different identities that are marginalized and oppressed within the different spaces that she enters into. So she's young, right? Um, she is a girl and we know even within the Himba culture that she loves, that there are certain, uh, rights and privileges that she isn't supposed to have. She does. She gets to see the night masquerade, right? But she isn't supposed to experience that. Uh, she's a young black girl. She's Himba and spaces that largely don't have Himba people in them. And so she sits at all of these intersections and then to bring in Juanita's point, the book explodes this already nuanced identity to continue to add she becomes Meduse, right? She kind of keeps adding these different layers to her identity. So what do we think about, uh, to use the, the term intersectionality here, kind of the intersections of her identity and how might um these different facets maybe disrupt or push back against some of the marginalization that she's experiencing
1: hmm, that's an interesting question i think in some ways it helps her to view some of her fat it helps her deal with the tension that she has with her family members is i think as she sees herself wrestling with unpacking multiple identities i think she's able to see some of her family having multiple identities, like mm-hmm. her mother being a what they call it, a mathematical the term they use something like a mathematical seer, a mathematical mm-hmm. yeah. She can visualize the the math exactly. Yeah. So it's like not only is she my mother, she has this personality, or her fa- or even her father, even though she knows her father has this traditional role as far as um being against the people of like oku her father still builds that tent and researches to create an environment that's amenable so her father has a, he's a harmonizer also so i think she it helps her understand that life is full of nuance mm-hmm. and you're going to meet people and also entities of non people who are just as nuanced yeah
0: I think she even says at one point, like, I didn't leave home to change who I am or to change who we are as a people, but rather to kind of expand how we think about ourselves. And so she was never trying to like not be Himba, but rather to expand maybe what being Himba meant uh, within within mm-hmm. kind of broader context, which I think is really cool.
1: What do you think, Malik?
2: Um- I've been thinking about this since I read the book. And I wonder if um, Okorafor is trying to say something with, this is supposed to be a coming of age story for Benti, but how she is positioned in the book as a harmonizer, not just with her relationship with mathematics, but she's the one who has to be resolved, who has to be the one to resolve, excuse me, these tensions between these various uh, groups of people and non-human entities. Um, and I wonder if she's saying something in regards to the role of gender and how historically women and Black women have been uh, have been shouldering the load for that sort of thing. And not just like, well, just within the history of like the entire diaspora.
1: Now that you mentioned that, can we talk a little bit about Binti's rage and Binti's fury? Yeah. Yes, oh, I, I, <laughs> I kept on thinking about uh, a book written by Brittany Cooper called "Eloquent Rage."
2: Yeah, and, write, yeah, yeah.
1: And there's been a lot of uh, recent feminist books about women having the right to express their rage because mm-hmm. traditionally, uh, stereotypically, you know, rage was something that women women were supposed to contain. But I love the how core for gives Binti these moments of rage mm-hmm. and how she's able to release it. I, I just, it, it, it just excited me from a feminist perspective, from a black feminist perspective.
0: I love that point. I've been thinking about um, this process that Benti takes to kind of discover who she is or rather is becoming, right? Because it's not a stagnant thing throughout the book. And we see that when she becomes part Medusa at the beginning, that's when she starts experiencing this rage. And when she first first gets to Umza University, she thinks that something's wrong. And she's like, I need to go home and I need to go on my pilgrimage in order to cleanse myself of this anger. And I think exactly to your point, Juanita, she realizes kind of the longer the story progresses that this rage is part of her it's part of her kind of new identity but also that it can be very productive and useful in different contexts and I think that goes back to what I was trying to articulate earlier this idea that if she was just kind of stuck in this one version of what it meant to be Himba, then she wouldn't ever be able to see the rage as something that could be productive. And in the process of leaving, she realizes that being Himba, being a girl, can look different. It can be different. And it can having this rage can be something that's very useful for her um, on top of her harmonizing, but uh, also the rage can be productive in those spaces too. So I really appreciate that point.
1: And in the in the and in the text, you know, the rage. At one point, it interrupts her mathematical mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: skills. How and she has these panic attacks. Yeah. But as she learns that it's part of her, it becomes less disruptive. Yeah.
2: And I wonder if that has something to do with the growing relationship that she had with Okwu, and it. Trying to like make sense of the reality of the stereotypes that 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 group has of being like um, a hive mind. I think they use that word quite a bit in the book and being always angry at savages. And I think I remember um, with the there were instances where she thought after like adopting some of the Okuokuo, she was wondering if some of that M- Medusa DNA, for lack of a better word, was infused with her. But it it wasn't necess- It might not even necessarily been that. But it was just a way of like being able to, like you said, wanting to like channel her, uh channel her anger and her and her rage and whatnot. At least that's what it's I'm a, thinking.
1: Yeah, and his I, his, I, his quote stood out to me, and it's related to what we're talking about about her these realizations, this because she says, I forget what page is. on, I usually write the page number down, I didn't, but she's talking about Himba and the Kosh. and she says, but in matters of girlhood and womanhood and control, we were the same. Mm -hmm. So she's finding out that the more she discovers herself and the more she goes on this journey, she's finding out that there are more similarities between these warring peoples, at least from the perspective of womanhood and girlhood, then there are differences.
0: I'm fascinated by this point. I've, I've had, I've been pondering this question for the past few days. <laughs> um, this idea of what does it mean for Benti to become all of these different identities? Um, because, one version, a more simplistic version of the story could just be that Benti comes into contact with all of these different groups and rewrites the scripts in her mind about who these people are. Mm-hmm. Okorafor does not stop there. She goes, no, Benti, you're going to become or realize that you have been part of these groups. Uh, so it's not even just how she perceives them, but she actually becomes them. And I've been trying to like wrap my mind around what that means in terms of, um, how these different groups interact. And I'm wondering if it goes back to Juanita, what you're saying, this idea of, um, realizing the similarities and between the different groups. And I'm wondering if Binti's role uh that she kind of plays in these different groups that she comes in contact with her very act of becoming meduse for instance is the way that she kind of reconciles her understanding of who they are because yes she experiences this new rage but she also never loses her ability to harmonize and so by realizing that she's not kind of fully meduse she can also come to kind of wrap her mind around them as not completely this raging, violent group. Um, and I don't know what to do with that, but I find it so fascinating that it's not even just stopping at, okay, we need to rethink how we think about other groups, but also that she becomes a part of them and that becomes the, the connections, the similarities, I think, become part of how that process works. That's really fascinating to me.
1: Hearing you say that almost makes me think wonder if a for is wanting us to think about the issues of empathy and Mm. being allies or or I like to use the term accomplice Mm. you know accomplices and those those kinds of things roles and what those the implications of those kind of roles particularly with a group that we might traditionally have been warring with. Absolutely.
2: Michelle mentioned it she did say something about, like, the. I was looking at an interview of hers where she talked about the idea of hybridity and how she wants to include that, just not with the concept of African futurism, but just in how she interacts with people in general. Because he said something about empathy, uh, Juanita, and she, the interviewer, had brought up something in regards to winning an award that had, uh, that had the likeness of H.P. Lovecraft. And H.P. Lovecraft's, uh, uh, it was like known, that has a history of being anti-Semitic and and racist. And um, she talked about that she knew about it, but it didn't come into the forefront uh, until um, a relative spouse, it might've been her sister's husband. I can't remember exactly, but he came, and he was a poet and he came to her saying like, is that H.P. Lovecraft? And she was like, "Yeah." And she said, "I need." He said, "I needed to show you something." And he showed a Akora for a poem that I'm pretty sure it was a poem that was talking about was very anti-black.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But she did talk about in the sense that, like, she doesn't necessarily she doesn't she wants to believe she believes in inclusivity and not erasure. Like, she obviously finds what H.P. Lovecraft found to be problematic but it's important to understand that where that writing from a historical context and where future like and later writers such as herself come in to make mm. the idea of science fiction and her realm of African futurism more inclusive so I think that might be something as far as like the empathy goes maybe that's something that she's trying to weave into uh, the Benti trilogy as well.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is a, for lack of a better transition, um, before we move on to the last segment, I do want to bring up, um, Benti's girlhood, because I think that's also such a fascinating part of, you know, we mentioned kind of coming of age, uh, and this idea of, again, Benti sits at this intersection of being a young woman, being Himba, being Black, being... Uh, I think Juanita, you mentioned experiencing mental health. That's another way that she's kind of uh, struggling, I think, with identity and having these, these moments of PTSD. Yeah, she,
1: gets a, she even gets a PTSD diagnosis.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so she has all of these different facets of her identity that she's having to work through. And one of the ones that is so striking to me is that she is such a young woman who is taking her fate into her own hands and leaving her home to go to a university. And I think it's worth mentioning because we all work at a university and we work with undergraduates who, like at a very basic level, this story is gonna resonate, like the idea of leaving home. Uh, So how does Fenty's girlhood maybe kind of further influence the way that you think about her as a character? Why is it important? that uh she's a young woman
1: that's kind of going through all of these experiences well in my in uh, the course i'm teaching right now i teach it from a perspective called uh, the lifespan feminism Mm -hmm. in other words so everything that we're every time we discuss it we're looking at it through girlhood adolescence emerging adulthood and through seniors senior citizens and to me it's susan douglas is the one who coined this term and it's like a to me, it's a bill, a bridge building feminism. Mm-hmm. And as I think about the story and Benti, I think of how her girlhood and how she's going through this, I search for identity, how this hybridity, how this, um, her wanting to go through her quest or her passage, how all this is going to implicate the woman Benti. Yes. The woman that she's going to become. It's almost like she's gathering, all these things are going to inform that woman. She's gathering tools. She's gathering answers to questions that will inform the decisions she has to make as a woman. So I think I love to see this, her girlhood. It's like she's living the questions right before mm-hmm. our very eyes in this story. Oh, I love that.
0: And she's kind of like exploding, not exploding, but pushing the boundaries of what it even means to be. A woman and
1: her culture, mm-hmm. um, because and she, even the way she left home, yeah. you know, she had to basically sneak. Great. <laughs> right. So, and, and and I know we're later going to to talk more about this mathematics and STEM mm-hmm. thing, but this is interesting to me too. Her mother ha, it's called mathematical sight. I looked at my notes and her mother has, and I'm just wondering how. But yet, her sisters, we don't get a. a just from the way they portrayed in the conversations and the glimpse, we don't get that uh, sense that, that kind of exploration or having a, going off and enjoying something and exploring a topic of fear that you enjoy is not something that they wanted to do. So obviously she was in a household where she probably felt different even as a child.
0: Yes. Yeah. And She knows that she's making a decision that automatically makes her unappealing as a partner uh, within her culture and what heavy stakes involved in the decision to, you know, choose the path of her calling, which she seems pretty convinced uh, that this is her calling to go to this university and to study this subject that quite literally influences how she sees the world, but it directly, it has direct implications for who she is perceived as a young woman or um, becoming a woman in her home culture.
1: And bringing it back to students here at Purdue, as you first initially said, it's, you know, thinking about the students are here in the midst of a pandemic it had to be an extra special challenge to make the decision to come to campus in this kind of situation and we don't know how many of them were maybe perhaps persuaded to reconsider by their parents or their families so just taking that leap to go into emerging adulthood by leaving home and coming to a college campus is it's is, is not to be taken lightly yeah. and sometimes I think we sometimes I think we do take it lightly but for some students for many students it's a very significant decision right
2: yeah
0: I think this is a good place to transition into talking about uh math in the book uh and this might be kind of our concluding topic but uh we all work at a university, but not only that, we work at Purdue University, which we all know is uh, a heavily STEM institution, though the three of us are in the humanities, right? Um, (laughs) A lot of the students that we are in contact with are interested in math and engineering and science, and that extends to our lovely protagonist here, I think it's such a fascinating choice to me for Okorafor to make Binti such a genius mathematician. Um, So like on a very basic level, it's rewriting who we even think can be um, a mathematician, a scientist, et cetera. So what does this choice of Okorafors mean to you and how we read? Benti as a Character and Benti the Trilogy. Um,
2: Can
1: I ask you a a question first, Erica? Go for it. Do you know if the STEM side of campus, anyone is actually reading this book or sharing this book? I do. Um, I can give a a shout out. I know there's at least
0: one book club in the chemical engineering department uh, that's reading it. And that's part of our goal as the big read is uh, to pick books that are interesting to not just the book nerds like us that read all the time, right? Uh, but to use that as a bridge, so we're working on it. And I know of at least one group who's reading it. Um, is it, you know, as extended as we would like
1: it to be? Maybe not. But um, I'm glad to hear. I'm glad to hear that, though. Yes, definitely. small steps. Small yeah. steps before giant leaps. Exactly.
2: <laughs> um. I guess I can share something that stood out to me uh, with um, for choosing to use mathematics as the uh, subject through which um, Benti tries to reach the full full realization of herself. Um, I think she's trying to show that she's trying to pull away from the idea of mathematics and just like the idea of STEM or the science-related stuff being Western-centric. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: because I had stumbled across an article from somebody named Claudia Zaslavsky that talked about ethnomathematics in some book that she wrote back in the 70s called Africa Counts. And she talked about how she was gaining, well, she discovered about how fascinating the Yoruba counting systems were And I think one example that she used that stood out was talking about, for example, if they wanted to say the number 65, they would say 5 from 10 from 420s. And or the number words for 45 would be 5 from 10 from 320s. And this would be something that would be if we were translated from the Yoruba language, this was what it would look like. I'm hoping that I say Yoruba earlier, not just Igbo, but, um, and I'm thinking that she's trying to center the idea of, that the, um this is something that is infused in the daily experiences of people from various ethnic groups in Africa, and they've came up with their own sorts of ways of negotiating the world around them, and keeping, tri- and using particular, like, hard sciences, like mathematics, to uh, organize their daily lives without like Europeans coming in and like giving them this knowledge. It's something that they've done for centuries beforehand. This was something that stood out to me. It was just, that was something that I wanted to look up and make sure like maybe this was something that a corporate was speaking to um, in regards to uh, make a note of the she says that she's i think i've heard her say in the interview that she's but thinks about the near future in regards to writing particular sci-fi african futuristic Mm -hmm. ideas so maybe she's looking at this is ways in which um folks from the african continent can um, build for better or bigger futures if that makes sense
1: I tell you that reading this book, uh, as you as you said, we are all humanities people, but it made me really think about math in my everyday life. Yeah, the, how Same. I might have overlooked systems of mathematics in my everyday life, and I love, and I got excited when she talked about her hair because there I've read things about how mathematical. African braiding
2: yes is. yeah is
1: and I had the chance a couple of years ago to go to Ghana and I went to the village where they make a lot of the kente cloth and the patterns and how they weave and how they know and you know as, kente is multicolored and how they how mathematics is involved in even knowing what thread
2: like geometry you know, pattern and stuff, yeah.
1: exactly in order to get the in pattern. So it really made me think about how I have overlooked mathematical systems in, in my day-to-day life. And I kind of got excited about that. Because yeah. even though I'm not a STEM person, I have great appreciation right. for um for the disciplines.
0: I love Benty's version of math, uh because I think I think about Benty and Umza University and the students and departments and disciplines that she's surrounded with. And it seems like so much of what is happening there. For instance, Akwu is studying, I think he's, they, it, excuse me, uh, it, it is it, studying it. Um, even there, right? The paradigms that influence the way that we talk that don't pertain yeah. to the story that um, Okorfor is writing. Um mm-hmm. But Akwu is studying weaponry, I believe. And to me, Binti's math is so different. Uh, And I'm fascinated by how her mathematics becomes, to me, it's rooted in more curiosity and connectivity to the world around her instead of these other versions where technology and innovation can become a means of war or violence. And so Binti's math and the way that she uses math doesn't seem to participate in that paradigm. It's tied to the land. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think what stood out to me is that it's tied to the land. And she's making like a pivotal point to make sure that it's like that the idea of mathematics and how it's used for her, her and other himba people it's connected to like material realities and like and it's not just a bunch of abstract like right. concepts and words it's like tied to their daily experiences the lives that they live There. Immediate environment, and since I'm like doing the research, my own research around environment, that's what just instantly stood out to me. It's like just, like, and I don't want to like pivot off to what we were talking about earlier, but it's just the idea of like, amongst the first things that she's trying to do is like try to find sand and something to remind her of home. Yes. So she's able to like invoke like the need of like properly doing the treeing or the mathematics that she's doing. It's like mm-hmm. it's so pivotal, like having the right type of. Environment for her to have the full realization of mathematics right. for her. So,
1: and one of the one of my favorite lines is that it says she's medicating with a soothing equation.
2: Yes, yeah. That
1: math yeah. being medicate, math is medication. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> another one, another line. She says mathematics are cartwheeling through my brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just.
2: Orpah has some really great prose, like prosy sentences. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, and I'm reading yeah. this and I'm like. Who in the math department needs to be reading this? <laughs> I think they would get excited I uh, of, of, this, of this kind of descriptive language about mathematics, you know?
0: Right. The idea of being so passionate about something that it like permeates every fiber of your being and directly filters like how you see the world around you is just so beautiful. Uh, and of course, I understand none of the equations that she's talking yeah. about. <laughs> I haven't taken math since high school, which was a long time ago.
1: Uh, but yeah, it's just beautiful. But it's also quite interesting because a part of my uh, of my syllabus, we haven't gotten to it yet. We're going to talk about women in STEM and, and you know, how gendered and how gender construction the discipline is. And I'll never forget talking to a, a math professor here. And I was sharing with him how my granddaughter, she's nine now, and at seven, she loved math. And one of the first things he said is, I hope they don't teach the love out of her. (laughs) You know, and I I thought about that quote, and and listen, I I mean, I want her, if that's what she ends up liking, I want her to be excited like Venti. I want the math to be cartwheeling through her brain. I want it to be soothing to her. I want her to be able to find applicable uses of mathematics to who she is, to her identity.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Maybe as a way of concluding, I think that this trilogy is such a beautiful picture of what mathematics, maybe even academia, larger, can be maybe like an aspirational vision of what it can be when there are more women and people of color at the table that are participating in not only doing this, the studying, but also like charting the path of what the disciplines even look like. Because again, Binti's math is not the same as a more Western centric version of math. Um, hers is a, a math of curiosity and connecting to the world around her and using it to harmonize amongst groups of people. And it's productive and it's healing and it's breaking down boundaries that exist uh, and and it's stylish it's even in her hair it's stylish too she good yes she has people looking at her hair (laughs) and the um the ship and admiring this beautiful uh hair that she has yeah yeah I love that (laughs) any final thoughts
1: uh before we wrap up I guess final. My final thought is: this is not the first uh, book by a core for that I have read. I read um, "Who Fears Death," and I love that one too. Um, but I just I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast that, especially if you're in the STEM disciplines, I think you would get excited about this book. Mm-hmm. I think you would get excited, especially those who are in the women and gender, women in science, women in STEM program. I think this book would um, could be a entry into some very int- exciting and needed dialogue between the disciplines on our campus.
2: Oh, it's, it reminds me perfectly of what you said. Of uh, what you said, Juanita reminds me perfectly of what Dr. David had mentioned during her speech and. A core for quote of African futurism, not being a wall, but a bridge and uh, just echo the uh, sentiments that she held. I think this book will be like a tremendous bridge for STEM students to um, get better acquainted with African futurism.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. If you can't tell dear listeners, we love this book. I love... The book selection, I love that The Big Read gives us a chance to have such meaningful and important discussions about topics that really, really matter uh, in the world that we're living in. So thank you both to Malik and Juanita for joining today. Uh, You've been fantastic guests, and I'm very grateful to have had a a lovely conversation with you. Uh, And to our listeners, please don't forget to check out our Big Read website. We have many more events, including another podcast coming your way later this semester uh, leading up to the brilliant moment that Nnedi Okorafor will be visiting us in November, which we are all very excited about. Uh, So thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll sign off there. Bye, everyone. Thank you for
1: having me. Bye-bye. Yes,
2: bye.